Hey everybody, it's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors at the Summit. Thanks so much for joining us, particularly in this weird time. It is a weird time. I don't know if you're anything like me. I just don't know how to do basic rhythms of life anymore. Um, you know, if you bump into somebody in your neighborhood that you know while you're out on a walk, how are you supposed to greet one another? How are you supposed to acknowledge and honor CDC guidelines of having your face covered with a mask while at the same time run a basic errand like going to the bank? Isn't there something fundamentally suspicious about me going into the bank with my face covered and not, you know, trying to give the perception of being there to rob it? Do I announce that I'm not there to rob it, which in itself I think uh, increases suspicion that I am there to rob it? And I feel that even with just basic things in the life of the church, like are we supposed to do a special coronavirus preaching series? Are we supposed to just continue on as planned uh, in the gospel according to Matthew? I felt that particularly over this past week where you know, she kind of just read the text for us and I assume none of you, as she was reading that and heard Jesus talk about things like your righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees and um, that Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but actually fulfill them. I assume none of you were like, oh my gosh, I was just having a conversation about that this morning. Oh my gosh, I was just on a Zoom call this past week. And those were exactly the issues we were wrestling with. But one of the things that I really love about teaching through books of the Bible is the surprising ways that what initially seems like irrelevant issues that are being raised uh, beautifully intersect with what it is we're going through right now. It's like when God sets the tone of the conversation, it's amazing the surprising ways he intersects with what we're wrestling with and our current realities. And I'm really uh, looking forward to showing you how that's the case uh, in what Jesus just talked about. Now, here's the heart of what Jesus is doing and I think intersects with the current crisis. Jesus, in this text, is going to establish his exclusive authority to speak into what truly constitutes human flourishing. That's what he's doing. He is ex establishing his exclusive authority to speak into what truly constitutes human flourishing, how we are supposed to live and consequently flourish uh, as a result. In the same way that, you know, if you're going to have a surgery performed on your body, you would want to make sure that that doctor was properly credentialed to have that sort of influence over your life. So Jesus, in many ways in this scene, is laying down his unique exclusive credentials to de uh, declare what constitutes human flourishing, to declare what it's good, right, and true for us. And when we align our lives to what he declares to be good, right, and true for us, what awaits us is joy. I think this is uniquely relevant. This is just sort of a cultural observation. I'm not sure if this has been your experience, but it's been striking to me the way that in the current moment, it seems like the quantity of people telling you how you're supposed to live your life has not decreased, but rather increased. It seems like the loudness of voices saying, this is what you're supposed to be doing uh, has not gotten quieter, but rather louder. Now, it's a bit surprising, right? You would almost expect people to kind of take this posture of, you know what, this is everybody's first global pandemic and uh, quarantine. And consequently, we probably shouldn't have too uh, firm of opinions. None of us are really experts in this. And, um, you know, we're, we're just going to kind of wait before we declare this is what you're supposed to do. It seems like the opposite has happened um, from articles being written to Twitter hot takes to promoted Instagram posts of, uh, of life coaches saying this is what you're supposed to be doing right now. And probably for many of you, that compounds the anxiety that everybody else has found the secret and you haven't found it yet. Now, I, 
and that's not all bad. I mean, I think it's good that we learn from the wisdom of others. My family has benefited greatly from this. But the point is that as this conversation is being raised, as people are telling you, this is how you're supposed to live, as we're seeing the inescapability, the inevitability of an ongoing conversation of what truly constitutes human flourishing. It is inevitable to be having that conversation, even in a moment like this one. What Jesus is saying in the midst of all these different cries from all these different voices telling you this is what you're supposed to be doing. Christ alone is deserving of having that kind of influence and authority over your life. That Jesus alone, not your parents, not some influencer that you admire, not even you, Christ alone is meant to declare what constitutes human flourishing and to declare to us what is good, right, and true. And he is inviting us to align our rhythms of life with what he has declared will result in us flourishing as we were intended to flourish. That's what Jesus is doing in the scene. I'm looking forward to showing you this and how he does this in three particular ways. One, we're going to see Jesus' great reveal. Jesus' great reveal. Jesus is going to first tell us that Jesus is the goal, the culmination, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, thousands of years of searching and longing find clarity in him and the work he's come to do. Look with me at what we just read in verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You know, it's interesting, right now in the midst of quarantine, a lot of people are putting out resource recommendations, right? Here's the 10 things you need to be streaming on Netflix. Here are the 10 books that you have to read if you find yourself bored. It's like Jesus is throwing a bit of a uh, recommendation into that conversation, and he's recommending something that uh, I've not seen in any resources up to this point. He's recommending something that we would call the Old Testament. When he says in verse 17, the law and the prophets, this would have been a very common way for a first century Jew like Jesus to make reference to what we call the Old Testament. Now, as he continues, he makes two points as he's bringing up this resource of the Old Testament. First, he says, I have not come to abolish them. So pause here. It's popular in our culture, and this is not just secular culture, but I would say Christian culture, to take this highly dismissive posture towards the Old Testament, as if it's sort of this jumbled mess of bizarre stories that are impossible to understand, alongside arbitrary, irrelevant principles of how people who lived a long time ago lived and even like, uh, uh, you know, it's almost like if the New Testament hadn't been written, I'm not sure if I could read the Bible at all. Jesus is saying, don't abolish the Old Testament. Don't be dismissive in your posture towards the text. It is far more thoughtful and intentional and beautiful than that. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but he, second, but to fulfill them. What Jesus is saying is that the Old Testament finds its conclusion, its clarity, its fulfillment in him. What's happening in this moment is we are witnessing a grand, great reveal from Jesus. I almost want you to think about it. Think about it like a great 
mystery story. A great mystery story, a great mystery story always has in it some moment of a grand reveal. And, and kind of the big question that's going in the midst of a great mystery is who did it, right? And what the author does is there's clues along the way, and then there's a great reveal of, oh, that's the person who did it. And what's interesting is the clues and the culprit have a, a symbiotic relationship with one another. The clues point to the culprit. The culprit helps us look back and make sense of the clues. That's basically the point that Jesus is making about his role in the, uh, in the conclusion, the climax, the clarity given to the Old Testament. The question of the Old Testament is not who did it, but rather who is it? Who is the Messiah? Who is the one who is coming to put the world back together in the way that we long for it to be? The Old Testament is this series of clues, of prophecies, of anticipations, of anticipating somebody to come. And Jesus now in this moment has revealed to his audience who's still in the first century after generations of longing and waiting, he is saying to them, the one you've been waiting for is me. I'm here I have come to bring fulfillment. The one that you have longed to come to bring salvation stands before you. Two, Jesus is telling us in this moment that he cares how we live our lives, that Jesus cares how we live our lives. So he's going to go on to say, I am the fulfillment, and now I am here to tell you how to live. Simply, point, simply put, a huge point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus cares how we live. He cares how we conduct our lives. He does not just want us to hold to certain ideas. He wants the seed of the gospel that are planted deep inside of our soul to yield the good fruit of kingdom living. We see this very explicitly. Look with me at verse 19. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, remember, we've talked about this. A major theme of the Sermon on the Mount is not just being a hearer, but a doer of the word. Here's that theme again. But whoever does them, say that with me, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he adds on to this a very interesting statement. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what in the world does that mean? I'm gonna make three observations of verse 20 that hopefully helps you make sense of what Jesus is doing here. One, Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders of the day. Um, when Jesus refers to the scribes and Pharisees in verse 20, he is naming the religious cultural authorities of the day. And much of what Jesus does in the remainder of not just the Sermon on the Mount, but the Gospel according to Matthew, is Jesus calling out these cultural religious authorities. And uh, they're uh, saying their preferential interpretations and faulty preferential interpretations of God's law, which they projected to the people around us as being holiness, is actually bankrupt. What Jesus is saying is, I see in you, as only God could, the dark heart that is fueling your pretend righteousness. Two, Jesus is declaring he's come to produce true righteousness, a truly righteous way of living. 
It's hard to communicate um, how startling a statement like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, would have been. This would have been like a mic drop moment for Jesus where there probably would have been an audible gasp and would have thought that what Jesus just said is actually impossible because the, uh, the posture towards the scribes and Pharisees is nobody is as good at being holy as those guys. It would kind of be like, hey, you're fine. It'd be like, you're fine as long as you're good at, uh, as good at dunking a basketball as LeBron James. Well, if you're a normal person and hearing that, you're like, well, well nobody, can, nobody can do that. And Jesus is not only exposing the bankruptcy of the false righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees of the day, but he is declaring that through his work and his spirit indwelling us, he will produce within us a greater fruitfulness than the guilt or shame of the religious leaders of the day ever could. It is an astounding statement from Jesus. Three, Jesus is telling us how we live matters. How we live matters. This is really the groundwork laid for the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, and in many ways is a rebuke to many of the misunderstandings of the work that Jesus came to do. You know, it's interesting, in irreligious circles a lot of times, it's popular to say that Jesus didn't really care about, you know, the things, how we live, right? He, doesn't, he didn't really say anything about who we should sleep with or um, other really crucial personal issues of life. Um, it's popular sometimes in religious circles to say it doesn't really matter how we live. It's kind of like what we believe. And because we're saved by grace, it doesn't matter what it is we do. We're under grace. And what's really interesting is what does Jesus immediately do from here is he immediately starts to address not only who we have sex with, but even who we think about having sex with. He goes on to address not only that um, we're not meant to harm people with our hands, but, uh, but, but even the hatred that we carry inside of our hearts. He deals with these incredibly personal issues like what we do with our money and how we handle anxiety. It's stunning. He's addressing these issues 2,000 years ago. And what all of this is revealing is that Jesus robustly, holistically cares about what we think feel, do, our head, our hearts, our hands, every aspect of how we live our lives. He cares how we live. Now, obviously, what Jesus is not trying to do is undermine the central teaching of the gospel that we are saved by grace alone. What he is trying to show us is that when we grasp the grandeur of grace, it propels us to a greater righteousness. It propels us to greater life change, that when we grasp grace it changes us and propels us toward something better than guilt or shame ever could. And much of what follows in the coming weeks reveals that reality. But third, <clears throat> we're seeing Jesus reveal his authority alone, like we talked about at the beginning, Jesus' authority alone to define human flourishing. So what Jesus is doing in this scene before he tells us how we are supposed to live, Jesus is revealing who he is and why he alone is deserving of that kind of authority to tell us how we should live. It's like he's anticipating this pushback from not only the original audience, but we who are hearing this 2,000 years removed, who don't like being told what to do and sort of have this posture that if anybody's gonna know what's best for me, it's me, right? Like nobody's gonna tell me how to live. And it's almost like he's anticipating this pushback of, wait a second, Jesus, who are you to tell me how I'm supposed to live? The scene of the Sermon on the Mount is the answer to that question. Now, <clears throat> 
One of the themes we've talked about fairly frequently in Matthew, especially if you were with us in the very beginning before we had to go uh, online, is how so much of Matthew is a purposeful reenactment from Jesus of significant moments in the story of the history of Israel to actually point to this very reality that he is the culmination, the climax, the fulfillment of what was being anticipated. And that is so beautifully on display in the Sermon on the Mount as well. See, here's what's interesting. In the history of Israel, one of the most uh, influential moments was the giving of the law, was the giving of the law. You see this, uh, it's actually happened several times in the history of Israel, but probably most famously you see it in Exodus 19 and 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And not only that, but the way that it unfolded was usually very familiar or or, uh, 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 consistent where somebody who was uniquely uh, anointed by God, so for example, in Exodus 19 and 20, somebody like Moses goes up on a mountain, meets with God, comes down a mountain, and tells the people, this is what God said to do. This is what God said the law is going to uh, be. Now, what's interesting in the Sermon on the Mount is there are so many striking similarities to Exodus 19 and 20 and um, what's going on right here. Here's this person who is giving people the law, but there's, there's this crucial difference. With Moses, Moses went up on the mountain, heard from God, came down the mountain, spoke to the people. It's interesting in this moment that this man named Jesus is speaking to the people from the top of the mount himself. Why? Where is God in all of this? Well, the reason that Jesus does not have to go meet with God at the top of the mountain in order to tell people what God says is because Jesus is God. And when Jesus speaks, God speaks. That God himself in this moment the creator of the cosmos, the one who, as Paul declares in Colossians 1 about Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is the firstborn of all creation, that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That in this moment, we are seeing this stunningly beautiful moment unfolding of the creator addressing his beloved creation, the crown jewel of his creation, the Imago Dei, his own personal image bearers and telling them, revealing to them how they were designed to flourish. You see, when you grasp that that's what's happening in this scene, creator addressing the crown jewel of his creation, what you get in what follows is that Jesus is not this angry, outdated, religious man imposing his ideas onto other people and telling people how they have to live. Instead, what you see is when Jesus gives us his law, he is not imposing, but revealing. Not imposing, but revealing. Revealing how we were designed. Say that word with me. Designed to live. And revealing to us the exclusive path towards true flourishing. It is gloriously beautiful when we think about that this is the creator addressing the crown jewel of his creation, his image bears. You know, I think one of the things I really love is being around creative people. It's one of the reasons I love our neighborhood so much. I wish I was more creative. I'm not, but I'm deeply inspired by creative people. And one of the things I love more than anything else is being with creative people and asking them questions about something that they've made. Maybe it's something they've painted or something they've crafted. And I feel like there's always a couple of realities when you talk to somebody who created something. 
One is they uniquely love that thing they created. It is an expression of their creative heart. And two, they understand what that thing they made was designed to do more than anyone else. They wonderfully, fearfully fashioned that thing for a purpose. And so it is with our creator God standing in front of the crown jewel of his creation is that what's being revealed to us in this moment and actually what he's going to say to us in the subsequent weeks in the Sermon on the Mount is that what we're hearing from Jesus, even as he speaks into these very personal and difficult areas of our lives, again, is not imposition, but rather revelation. It's not imposition, but rather liberation. It's an invitation into the life that's truly life because there's two realities about our creator God speaking to the crown jewel of his creation. Nobody loves us like him and nobody knows how we were designed to function and flourish like him. I pray that you keep that in mind as we continue this conversation in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, before we jump into that in uh, the coming week, uh, I just want to leave you with one key question that I think you need to answer before we start hearing what Jesus is telling us to do and how he's telling us to live. And here's the fundamental question, is who is the ultimate authority over your life? Can you name that person who basically is the final uh, decision maker, the final authority to tell you what is good, right, and true for you. Is it Jesus? Um, maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's somebody who's uh, influential culturally. Uh, maybe it's you. I think for most Americans, it's just, it's just us. And Jesus is like a consultant that we can take or leave his advice. He's not a king that we are meant to submit to and obey. I would encourage you to take some time and really reflect on who is that ultimate authority and if you're able to come to a point of clarity to say, you know what, it's somebody other than Jesus, I want to challenge you to ask three particular questions of that person who has that level of influence over your life. One, are they qualified like Jesus? Are they qualified as Jesus revealed himself to be qualified to be in this particular scene? Two, do they love you like Jesus? Do they love you as much as your creator God uh, loves you? Three, has following this person led to your flourishing or has it led to heartbreak? Has it led to your flourishing or has it led to uh, your heartbreak? And if you start to come to the conclusion that authority other than Jesus does not love you like Jesus, is not qualified like Jesus, and has not produced the fruit in your life like only Jesus can do, I want to invite you even right now in this moment to repent, to turn away and to turn to Jesus and to say to him, I want to submit to you. I want to follow you. I want to declare my allegiance to you because you're my king and I'm a subject and nobody loves me the way that you love me. So tell me how to live. Tell me how to live. I want you to return home to Jesus. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God that in all of our hearts in some way, I know we need to do that. I'm going to ask his spirit to not just uh, give us the courage to do that, but to give us the knowledge of how we are uniquely and specifically supposed to do that. And then we'll uh, respond through uh, singing. So Father, we pray right now in this moment that you would speak. We're thankful for you putting the authority of your son on display. And right now we pray that the spirit who searches our hearts and minds and spirits and souls would expose this deep soul level question of uh, who ultimately has this place of authority over our lives. And do they love us? Are they qualified to do this? Have they broken our hearts or have they led to us 
thriving and flourishing as you've intended us to flourish. And, and Father, I pray that um, just in the same way that a prodigal son felt the freedom to return home and was met with open arms by a loving father, so men and women today, right now in this moment, will return home as well. And maybe they don't have every question answered, but they at least have the question answered to say, when I wonder who's going to be the authority that tells me how to live, I'm going to answer that question with a resounding declaration that it's King Jesus. God, by the power of your spirit, produce that fruit in our lives. And we ask these things in your powerful name. Amen.